It is a great privilege to be with you this morning. A uh, great privilege to see this room full, as Emily said, and prayed, and uh, yeah, we, we love this. Love lifting up the name of Jesus together with you, and it's been a gift. We've been in the Gospel of Luke, as most of you know, we're going to just continue on this morning, Luke chapter 19. But before we take a look at the passage, I want to remind us of a truth that is basic to what we believe and is easy to confess, but for many of us, it's also easy to go weeks or months without living in light of, at least for me. And that truth is that Jesus is coming back. One day the sky is going to split open. And the same one who came as a baby is going to arrive as a king. And life as we know it is going to stop. It's going to come to a screeching halt. And everybody in this world, from the smallest to the greatest, from the richest to the poorest, and everybody in between, is going to gather around the glorious throne of Jesus to give an account of what they did even today. And the passage that we're going to look at this morning is going to force us to ask, how in the world should that great day change how we live on this seemingly normal day? How does God expect us to live between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus Christ? And I'm going to be just up front as we begin that Jesus is going to speak pretty directly to us this morning. I'm going to welcome you in because I have been feeling him speak directly to me over these past days. And there is so much goodness here too for us. And so we want to just sit underneath both of those. Hear his direct words to us and receive all of the grace that he has to give us. So... Let's look at the passage this morning, beginning in verse 11. If you would look there with me. As they heard these things, he, Jesus, proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. As we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, we have been for the last 10 chapters on a journey. In Luke chapter 9, there's that great phrase, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, knowing the cross is there, and he's going. And now in Luke chapter 19, we reach the end of the road. He is near to Jerusalem, verse 11 says. And next week, he's going to enter the city. And all along the way, there's been anticipation building because the crowds that are around Jesus know where he's going. And they know that something big is about to happen there. You can see their anticipation here at the second half of the verse. They suppose that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. When most of us hear that phrase, the kingdom of God, we probably think of something mainly spiritual, like... The kingdom of God is where God reigns over the hearts of his people. The kingdom of God is here, right now, among us. And that is true. But for the Jews of Jesus' day, 
the kingdom of God, they expected something far more externally obvious. The kingdom of God meant that accounts were settled, and enemies were defeated, and judgment was done, and a warrior king reigned over the nations from Jerusalem. No more Rome. And a Jewish, uh, a Jewish neighbor once said to a friend of mine, you Christians just don't understand. But we believe, but we believe that when the Messiah comes, no one's going to work the next morning. And the same is true for a lot of Jews in Jesus' day. The arrival of the kingdom of God was going to mean the end of the world as we know it. The problem with that, for Jesus, was not necessarily the expectation, but the timing of it. There is coming a day when accounts are going to be settled, and enemies defeated, and judgment done, and Jesus is going to reign over the nations. But that day was not yet. He was going to Jerusalem, not yet, to wear a crown, except a crown of thorns. He was going to Jerusalem to open the way to the kingdom of the sinners. And so, verse 11 says, he proceeded to tell a parable. Don't you love Jesus? <laughs> he tells a story, like he so often does, to correct misinterpretations. And in the story, he's not only going to communicate that the arrival of God's kingdom was at that point still a ways in the future, but he's also going to show what it means, what it looks like to live for him in the meantime. How do we live? How does God expect us to live before the great day of the Lord, the coming of Jesus? Parable is going to answer that question for us. So, let's step in. If you would, look with me at verse 12. Jesus said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minus and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. So right away, Jesus introduces us to three characters, or three kinds of people. You have the nobleman, we'll just call him the master. And he's going away to a far country to receive a kingdom and then return. Which kind of sounds strange, but people in Jesus' day, his hearers, would have been familiar with that kind of thing. There was this guy even in their lifetimes named Archelaus who went to Rome in order to receive the emperor's authority to reign over the land of Israel. And there was actually a group of Jews who went after him and went to Rome and said, hey, we don't want that guy to be king. So they would have been familiar with that. And we're going to see that um, in many ways, this master reflects Jesus. Because Jesus is about to go to his own far country, isn't he? And he's going to receive his own kingdom as he dies for sinners and rises from the dead and ascends to his Father's right hand. And then he's going to come back home. So, you have the Master, and then you have these ten servants, each of whom receives a mina or a, or a mina, I don't know how to say it, or maybe with a mina, uh, from the Master before he leaves. And uh, a mina is about four months, 
worth of wages. So if you just take what you are, divide it by three, you get a basic idea. It's a good chunk of money. And he says to them, as he gives them this money, engage in business until I come. Work a profit while I'm gone. Faithfully steward the money that I give you so that you might have more when I come back. And as you might imagine, we who follow Jesus, who, who claim his name, are meant to see ourselves in these ten servants. We too have been given something precious from Jesus, a, a mina, so to speak. And I want to be careful here not to overly interpret what Jesus might mean by that word mina, what it represents, because he doesn't give any real specific meaning, and there's nothing that I see in the context that would narrow it down to something particular, like spiritual gifts or financial resources or something like that. So the mina, I think, broadly refers to the various responsibilities we as Jesus' people have before he comes. The various responsibilities he gives us as people who are part of his kingdom. And he says to us, as the master in this parable said to his servants, take this grace and live faithfully for me until I come. Obey my teaching, spread my kingdom, follow me wherever I tell you to go. So master, ten servants, and then you have this group of people called citizens who don't want this man to reign over them. And most immediately to the context, this group of people refers in a lot of ways to the Jewish leaders of the day, who did everything they could to see Jesus killed. And we're going to see that as we keep traveling through Luke. But they also represent, or we can see in them, just people in any day who live in a way that says, I don't want Jesus to reign over me. I don't want him to be king. So already, the parable is forcing us to ask, who are you like? Are you like a citizen in this parable who does not want the reign of Jesus, who just wants him to be gone and to not come back? Or are you like a servant who has pledged your allegiance to him and is now waiting for him to, to return? Keep reading with me now. Verse 15. When the master returned, having received the kingdom... He ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mind has made ten lines more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mind has made five lines. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. What we see here in this picture of the master coming back and taking an account from his servants is a little picture of the final judgment when Jesus returns and people gather before him. He calls everyone around his throne to give an account for what they have done. And to those who have been faithful, he will say, well done. And I want to press into this because this way of thinking about the final judgment 
It's not a, a real common way we as Christians talk about it. We don't often consider or talk about the place of works or our faithfulness on the day of judgment. Right? As the hymn says, And when before the throne I stand in him complete, Jesus died my soul to save, my lips shall still repeat. Amen to that. The only way that anyone is getting into heaven is because Jesus died for them, not because they did anything good enough to get there. And then with that gospel foundation in place, again and again, Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament give us this, un this another picture of the final judgment, of Jesus um, repaying each one according to his works. So, on the one hand, you have the gospel truth that no one is saved except by grace alone, through faith alone, according to the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. And then, you have this emphasis that the grace that saves us does something to us. As Pastor Sam said last week, the gospel is not a salvation of works, but it is a salvation that works. And on the day of judgment, as Jesus takes stock of how his people lived before he comes, that is going to show whether the grace of God was real in a person's life or not. And I know this thought of a judgment according to works, a judgment that takes stock of a person's works, that can be frightening. Even for people who feel generally secure in the grace of God, who, who know that their sins are forgiven, that their only hope is Jesus, that they're not looking and trusting in themselves. Even for people like that, this, the idea that they're going to come and give an account of their life, that can be frightening. It frightens me sometimes. But I want you to notice that there is another side to it at play in this parable that Jesus wants us to see. Notice just how eager the master in the parable is to reward his servants. And not only to reward them, not only to say well done, but to say it specifically. To look at the specific work that one of the servants has done and to give specific commendation. The master in this parable, and we're going to talk about this more, he shows a disposition toward reward, a disposition toward commendation for those who have obeyed his teaching in his absence. And we could go other places in the New Testament and the Old Testament to corroborate this, but one thing this shows, church, is that the Lord Jesus in heaven does not forget or neglect the faithfulness that you show to him today. He doesn't lose sight of it, even when you do. He doesn't forget the evenings that you give up in order to care for somebody needy. He doesn't forget the awkward but sincere attempts you make to share Jesus with neighbors or family members. He doesn't forget the moment this past week when you chose him over some temptation, even though no one else would need to know about it. He doesn't forget whatever good you do that you wouldn't have done if you didn't love him. It's just remarkable in the scenes of final judgment throughout the Bible how, 
how Jesus just, he, he, he mentions those things that people don't even remember, those small things. You give a cup of cold water to a disciple in that name. There's this great quote from an old guy in John Owen, 17th century. He says that uh, God remembers those duties which we forget, and he forgets those sins that we remember. And that's at play here. This, the master looking at these two servants who, who, who wanted to please him, even though there were differing levels of faithfulness, he rewards both, specifically. He is eager to do so. In fact, the only person that he doesn't commend, that he doesn't reward, we're going to see now, is the person who didn't even try to be faithful. So, let's look at verse 20 now. Then another came, saying, Lord, here's your money, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you're a severe man. You take what you didn't deposit, and you reap what you didn't sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. So before the master leaves, he gives them these minas and he says, engage in business until I come. The first two servants get busy. This servant goes home, finds a handkerchief, Hides the money, doesn't do anything else. Why? You can see what he says here. He was afraid. In his mind, the master was a harsh man, an unfair man, who took what didn't belong to him. And so he may have thought, you know, if I make money on what he gave me, he's just going to take it. And if I lose money, he's just going to punish me. So I'm going to hide the money, and just give it back to them. But there are two problems with that. One is that it's in direct disobedience to what the master actually told him to do. And two is that it shows a twisted idea of who this master is. Nothing in the parable that we have seen suggests that this master is fundamentally a taker rather than a giver. When the first two servants come to him and they show him what they made, he doesn't take it from them. He gives them far more than what they had made. Far more than they might have imagined. Ten cities for the first servant. Five cities for the second. He gave them money at the start and then he gives them a reward on top of it. He's a giver. He's not a taker. So something more is going on here, and the master knows it. You can see it in the response that he gives to this servant. He says, you wicked servant. The problem wasn't that the master was harsh, but that the servant was wicked, that he, he didn't want to serve this man. Because if he did, he would have at least done the bare minimum step of putting the money in the bank so that it would gain interest. But he didn't even do that. So the problem is that even though this servant was calling himself a servant, and even though he was calling this master Lord, you can see that, just like the first two servants call him Lord, so he calls him Lord, he's not acting like a servant. He's acting like one of the citizens. He didn't want this man to reign over him. And there's a warning for us here, church, that Jesus wants us to reckon with. 
And the warning is that it's possible for somebody to call him Lord while not wanting him to be Lord. It's possible for someone to call himself or herself a servant while acting more like a citizen who doesn't want him to reign over them. Which is one reason why at APC we try to take church membership so seriously, why we do DNA accountability groups and try to dig into each other's lives rather than just letting each other go our own way. Because on Judgment Day, we do not want anybody here to be the third servant. We don't want anybody here to be calling Jesus Lord now only to have it shown on that day that they never had him as Lord. We want the reckoning to happen now before he comes so that mercy can be received now and on the day that he comes. And all of us need help with this. No exception. All of us need help here. Because every single one of us over time, our indwelling sin is such that there are just going to be parts of life that come up where we're calling Jesus Lord, but we're living like we're Lord. And so everybody here needs somebody to come alongside them and from time to time say, don't you see how good the Lord Jesus is? <laughs> that he's not a taker, that he's a giver. That no matter what area of life you're looking at, what he calls you to do is not going to be for your harm, but it's going to be for your good. Do you see how good it would be for Jesus to reign over every part of your life, over your money, over your entertainment, over your alone time, over your sexuality, over your job, over your everything? Well, let's finish the paragraph. Look with me at verse 24. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mind from him and give it to the one who has ten minds. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minds. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here. These are the last words that Luke records Jesus speaking before he heads into Jerusalem and Passion Week begins. And they are heavy. There could be nothing sweeter on Judgment Day than hearing Jesus say, Well done, good and faithful servant. And nothing more better than to see him turn his face away. Or to watch him turn his face towards you in judgment. I know it is not easy or comfortable for us to think about the Lord Jesus slaughtering his enemies. For many of us at least. Those who have read the book of Revelation know that it's not an exaggeration. And in our sinnest moments when we feel the evil of our own sin, we know it's not injustice. Even though sometimes it can be hard to grapple with. But we need to, even if it makes us feel uncomfortable, because Jesus, Lord of love, Lord of peace, as we sang, He said, he said these words to us. And one day they're going to be reality. And on that day, 
what we need to feel is that the things right now that can so often feel all-consuming are going to fade into the background. It's not going to feel as important on that day whether we succeeded in our dream career or not. It's not going to feel very significant how much money we have in our bank accounts. It's not even going to feel of utmost importance if our various dreams for this life came true or not. These things are significant. They're important. And Jesus cares about them too. But on that day, what is going to feel most pressing, what is going to feel like total reality, is, man, did I live faithfully for Jesus. No matter what life looked like here, the measure of our days, what one thing this passage is teaching us to do is to look at our days and to get a new metric for them, to measure our days, not by whether they matched up to all of our expectations for them, but if by the grace of God we lived faithfully for Jesus in them. And I know that can be hard for some people to hear because life is life feels crushing and it, the, the things that are consuming feel rightly consuming. But I want you to hear that to the extent Jesus gives you the grace to walk faithfully in them under the crushing burden, that the banner over that day is well done. And it's going to be well done on that day. And everything is hard, that's hard, feels so crushing, it's going to fade away. And what is going to be eternal reality is the reward of your master. I say all of this in response to this principle that Jesus gives us in verse 26. To everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So, in other words, some people are like the first two servants. They receive the grace of Jesus and they respond to him faithfully. And we're not talking about perfect faithfulness here. Let's just get that off the table. We're just talking about a pattern of faithfulness that shows genuine faith in Jesus. This person loves him, who wants to please him, confesses when he fails. And over time, a pattern of faithfulness to Jesus emerges. And to people like that, Jesus says, more will be given a reward beyond imagination in nearness to him and communion with him in the days to come, in the eternity to come. But other people are more like the third servant or more like the citizens. They don't do much with the grace of Jesus. They make excuses for their disobedience instead of confessing them to him. And over time, a pattern of faithlessness emerges. And Jesus says to people like that, even what they had will be taken away. The, the grace that they thought they had will be taken from them, and the reward that they could have had will be given to another. Now before we move on and just think about some applications, just two mistakes to watch out for as we think about these heavy words from Jesus. One, don't make the mistake that Jesus relishes this kind of judgment, like this is just what he loves to do. 
In a few verses, we're going to watch him look over the city of Jerusalem and weep. He's going to weep over the people who don't want him to reign over them. The very people he's talking about being slaughtered on that day, he's going to look at them and weep over them. Jesus would rather turn and have those people turn and be saved. Come on, turn and be saved. That's what Jesus wants. Don't make that mistake to think that this is just, he can't wait to do this judgment. Don't also make the mistake that Jesus never judges. Because he does judge. And he will judge. And the force of this parable is to say that if we don't want to fall under his judgment, then come and live under his good lordship now. So, talked about some applications already. I want to offer just three more brief words. Know yourself. Know your master. Know your mission. Just a brief word about each of those. First, know yourself. This passage gives to us an identity statement that is maybe not one we commonly give to ourselves as Christians. It gives us the identity statement of servant. We are servants of the Lord Jesus. We're not only servants. We're children of God. We're the bride of Jesus. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. But one of the most common titles for Jesus in the scriptures is the title Lord. And that means that servant is near the core of our identity as his people. And what does it mean to be a servant of Jesus? I want you to listen to these words from Luke 6.46 that Jesus says. He says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? That passage challenges me every time I read it. It shouldn't, but it does. There is something in me and I sense there's something in our broader Christian culture in the West that treats, has a disposition towards sometimes hearing the words of Jesus as recommendations rather than as commands. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Can we just agree that to call Jesus Lord is come before him to say, Lord, I want to do whatever you tell me to do. I want to do it. I need your help. I can't do it on my own, but there's not one word that I want to shove to the side that I hear from you. Do we fail in this church? Yeah, we do. Every day we do. Forgive us our trespasses is a daily prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. But there is a difference, a gulf, between the person over here who wants to obey him and fails and asks for forgiveness and <laughs> seeks to obey him again, and the person over here who looks at some of the commands of Jesus and just repeatedly says, in the soul, I don't think we're even going to try to obey that. So know yourself. You are a servant of Jesus if you belong to him. Now, know your master. We've seen in the parable, haven't we, that what you think about your master determines what you do for your master. 
It was the third servant in the parable who had this twisted idea who was faithless. The others who had a right idea of the master, they served him. There is a reason that the words for faith, the word faith and faithfulness are so related to each other. It's because faithfulness to Jesus always comes from faith in Jesus. Serving Jesus always comes from seeing Jesus. Living for Jesus always comes from loving Jesus. So faithfulness is what you do when you have faith in the glory of who Jesus is. You have to know Him. We have to know Him if we're going to serve Him like He calls us to. And I have needed to see Him this week, freshly. Because it is so easy for me sometimes to fall into patterns where all I have eyes for is my own faithlessness. All I have eyes for is to see how slowly I'm growing and how far I have to go and how often I fail to follow Him as I ought. What do you do when you feel that way? I'll tell you what you don't do. You don't go over here and try to drum up some faithfulness in order to bring that to Jesus. You need Jesus to be faithful to Jesus. Faithfulness to Jesus doesn't happen over here apart from Him. It happens with Him. You need to see that the Jesus you serve is a Savior bigger than your faithlessness at any given moment. And come back to him. I have needed to do that this week. The Jesus we serve, as we remember in the Gospel of Luke, and as we're going to see in glorious ways in the coming weeks, is a Jesus who is not only master, but who is servant. Amazingly. Every step he's going to take from here is going to be a step into Jerusalem where he goes closer to the cross where he was crucified for your sin. And that means you can bring your faithlessness to Him. Because the real issue, Christian, is not how often we fail to be faithless to Him, if you're really seeking to serve Him. The real issue is that you would stop trying. That you would stop fighting. That you would give up, give over, put your mind in a handkerchief and lay it away. That's the issue. Don't give up. The Jesus you serve is a Jesus worth following and a Jesus with enough forgiveness for every failure you have along the way. Finally, briefly, know your mission. Know yourself. Know your master. Know your mission. This is simple on one level. It's just strive to be faithful to everything that Jesus said. But on another level, there's a, there's a part of faithfulness that this passage brings up that I want to point out. It might sound counterintuitive. But it is that faithful people are willing to take risks with what Jesus has given them. The only cautious person in this parable was the third servant, who didn't do anything with the money that was given to him. The other two servants took what they had, and they said, let's try to do something with this for our master's sake. And there's a kind of ambition, a kind of creativity, a kind of risk-taking that accords with the faithfulness that Jesus talks about in this passage. It's the kind of thing where a person would look on their life and say, how can I leverage everything I have to try to do something for the good of other people in Jesus' name? Here's the application. 
How might we use, for example, a spare bedroom to foster a child, as Pastor Sam talked about last week? How might we use our position on a block in order to build community with our neighbors and start a Bible study and see who comes? How might we like, take a love of languages and learn some Somali, go to the mall, drink some tea, make some friends, share some Jesus with people? The idea here is just like, what, what's, a, what's, a, what's some creativity? Like, let's look at life. What has he given? Because the master in this serving, he gave the minds so that they could do something. And your master, your Jesus, has given you everything you have so that you might do something for his sake. So you might try something. You don't even wonder why you have the gifts or the job or the opportunities or the relationships or the home or whatever else you do. Yeah. You have it so that you might strive to be faithful to Jesus with it. And sometimes faithfulness to Jesus looks like taking a risk for him. So let's pray. feel like saying the words of the tax collector at the beginning of chapter 18 after a passage like this, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And we thank you that you do have mercy on sinners. You went to the cross for us. You shed your blood for us. And now you, you, you call us follow after you, promising that you're going to give everything that we need in the pursuit. And so I pray, Father, that as we sing to you now, and as we go from here, the, the primary feeling that we have is a sense of eagerness to want to be faithful to you, having received such a great grace and a great gospel from your hand. Pray for creative acts of faithfulness to come out of this. Hallelujah, name. Lift it up and give us grace now as we go. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.